0: system. Alexander Hamilton
3: being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. Kind. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're
1: really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand.
3: The shootings, the violence. That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem.
2: I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: Everyone knows the spirit of 76 sparked American independence. But it was the spirit of 74 that initiated the American Revolution. Today, our guests are Ray and Marie Raphael, authors of the new book, The spirit of 74 how the american revolution began many of us of course in american public education sat through our history lessons which were focused on great men but as the revolutionary spirit grew leading to a war for independence it was real everyday people making the real revolution. Before the ultra-rich established fat cats joined in, they wanted to share the loot after all. The Spirit of 74 is about class-blind democracy. The organizing force and lessons of that era are quite relevant to today's political challenge. And I'm very pleased to have with us on Keeping Democracy Alive the co-authors Ray Raphael and Marie Raphael. Thanks for being with us.
3: Okay, well, we'll pr- we're
0: pleased to be here. Very pleased. Well, good. I am pleased, too. Uh, Ray's 17 books include A People's History of the American Revolution, The First American Revolution, Before Lexington and Concord, Founders, The People Who Brought You a Nation, Constitutional Myths, Why We Get Wrong, uh, What We Get Wrong, rather, and How to Get It Right, and Founding Myths, Stories That Hide our patriotic past. Sounds like some interesting stuff. He's taught at a one-room public high school, Humboldt State University, and College of the Redwoods, and is currently Senior Research Fellow at Humboldt State University, and associate author of Journal of American Revolution. And Marie Raphael, author of two historical novels, has taught literature and writing at Boston University, College of the Redwoods, and Humboldt State University. Uh, she and her husband Ray Live in beautiful Northern California, where I hope there are no flames near you. Thanks for being with us. Well, there is no lack of books about the American Revolutionary Period and the War of Independence, which followed. What was your purpose in writing
1: this book? These 16 months are nearly lost to history. If if you look at the history of most wars, texts will spend a great deal of time talking about the tensions that caused the outbreak, the initial conflicts, the things that were going on that really drove revolution forward, that drove men to take up arms. And this period is largely ignored in our own texts. We go fairly directly in most books from the Tea Party to the outbreak of uh, armed conflict in Lexington and in Concord. It's almost as if the Tea Party happened in the beginning of the month,
2: and
1: the, yeah. the conflict broke out a month later. And it is wasn't like that. Those you know, 16 months really deliver a portrait mm-hmm. of a people. It uh, says a great deal about the American character.
3: Mm. Right. The usual story that we hear: right. the connection uh, between the the iconic events that the Boston Tea Party in Lexington and Concord, is, okay, after the Boston Tea Party, the uh, uh, Parliament punished Boston by closing its ports, right. and then other colonies uh, came to the aid. They they thought that would separate the colonies, but the other colonies mm-hmm. shipped supplies to Boston. They were very good people. And then a bunch of leaders got together in Philadelphia and petitioned the king for something that could change and they didn't get it. And somehow this act of charity uh, to help Boston and and uh, petitions to the king, which were not answered, mm. caused the caused uh, the British forces to attack the Massachusetts countryside 16 months later. And there's there's no plausibility to that story. It doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't mm. explain the beginning of a war. It doesn't explain a revolution. And so what we did is we said, okay, what's really happening here? And we find out that it wasn't the Boston. Act so much uh, that that really ticked people off in Massachusetts, and the Massachusetts, by the way, rose up and totally threw off off British rule before Lexington and Concord. That's what this book is about. And what really ticked them off is this uh, act of Parliament called the Massachusetts Government Act, which just revoked their Constitution.
1: And really, this this transformed the people. I mean, the thing that's interesting in this is a decade, a little more than a decade before the Boston Tea Party, the cl- colonists were celebrating the arrival of a new king, George III. They really did consider themselves
2: subjects oh, sure.
1: and, and took a great deal of pleasure in being English citizens. And by the time that war began, they were rebels. And how did this happen mm-hmm. in a 16-month period that there was this entire transformation
2: of the people?
0: well i i think it's a, a fascinating period of which i know not that much about but i am reminded of a wonderful book by one of my favorite authors barbara tuckman who wrote the march of folly and as you're talking i'm reminded of of how the british just blew it over and over and over again how they mm-hmm. they could have kept uh, the allegiance of the colonists but they messed up pretty badly, and we had a march when of...
3: You, when you think of it like, um, as in, what do you expect the people to do who have been basically ruling themselves on most matters for 150 years? Uh, you know, that's the mass- right. Massachusetts. Uh, since uh, 1620, they had been, they, you know, they, had, they, had, they, had, they had, their first charter was uh, 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 1629, and uh, it said, basically, you guys pretty much have control of your own
2: Right. Uh, you know, they they even
3: they point they they, they chose their own governor and everything. So, um, and then and even in the 1691 charter, they had their town meetings. The town meetings would elect representatives to the assembly, and uh, the assembly then would elect the council members. And then and, and so the only the only intrusion by the, and then all the local officials um, had to be approved by the council, and so they were. Uh, you know, every, except for the governor himself, every other official was accountable to the people.
2: Hmm. Now,
3: what is Britain expecting when they just decide unilaterally to say, "Sorry, folks, one town meeting a year—that's all you get, and you can't talk to, talk about anything that we don't, that the governor doesn't approve of," and uh, and your your representatives have no more say; uh, they can't choose the council, so the council is totally appointed. And all the way down to sheriffs to and jurors.
1: So you know, it it is amazing what I don't know what the King and Parliament expected. The King was tired of the unrest in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. which was the probably the most animated of the colonies. But when they decided to Introduce these acts to control the people. When Lord North proposed it in Parliament, he talked about taking the executive power from the hands of the democratic part of the government. I mean, it was from the outset the idea was to destroy democracy.
3: That, by the way, is a direct quote that Marie was reading from the book. Yeah. Out, that those are Lord North's very words. You know, that's that was the idea.
1: And and it came directly from the King. Lord North was fashioning legislation that gave the king. He had asked for measures to allow him to control the colony. And Lord North put together a program that took away democracy. Um, now, so I wonder what the what, reaction
0: What what sparked that? What why did they decide to do it? Was it uh King George that came in and, and, and changed everything and, you know, just took on democracy and self government? Seems an odd thing
3: to well, do. That's a, that's a very interesting question, because, okay, on the one hand, it was the Boston Tea Party, uh, you know, and that, that triggered for punitive acts, and that's... So there, it, it was kind of knee-jerk response. You know how uh, a lot of political figures and, and politics works by knee-jerk response? Oh, yes. And, and basically, they're saying, God, these, these people, they're uppity. They're, now they're throwing tea in the bay. They're totally out of control. And one thing that was causing their... They, for 10 years... Well, actually, at this time, for about nine years, since 65, um, the Massachusetts government has been uh, it, it, it been kind of like the king thought that they, you know, the crown thought that they could kind of keep a handle on things. But every, they kept running into the assembly, which, was dis, you know, which would uh, uh, disobey them.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
3: the assembly appointed council members, and the council members wouldn't agree with them. So they said, well, let's just get rid of this idea that the people can choose their own council. And while we're at it, let's get rid of all these things that the people do on themselves. I mean, it was just like this <laughs> huge overreaction without thinking about what kind of, you know, response that would take.
1: Amazing. And there were people in Parliament who spoke up for the colonies oh, and saw this coming. Sure. Uh, you know, and they, they took exception to the acts, but there was a majority after the Tea Party. The sentiment in Britain was was totally against the colonies. Benjamin Franklin, who was in England, was having a terrible time. Uh, You know, there was just this outrage. It was kind of the last straw, and it broke the camel's back, and the reaction was knee-jerk.
0: And as with so much of history, it really comes from the bottom up. It's not great men from the top down. It's from the bottom up. Certainly the Boston Tea Party was that. And you may not know that... In Boston, in the 1960s, there was a, gr- uh-huh. a great psychedelic rock dance hall called the Boston Tea Party. but <laughs> I, I, It was wonderful, actually. Some, any, but in 1773, of course, the Boston Tea Party was something else. We've all heard of it. But what was the significance of tea? I never really got that, the British fascination with tea. You say it was a character in New England's unfolding drama.
2: What okay.
3: Well, you... the, the the tea. First of all, to understand why tea came front and center in the drama, um, uh, in the okay, so it all starts with the Stamp Act. You know, the the the, the, the British are trying to uh, pay not not for their war debt in the French and Indian War. That's kind of a common misconception. Mm. But they did have it. They doubled the size of their American empire, and they needed to finance that. And they figured, well, the Americans should help finance it. So they started. So they started passing these revenue measures, the Stamp Act, and there was a big protest, popular protest, the people's protest, and it, and it worked. They repealed it. So then they said, they they kept it. They kept the thing saying, okay, we can still pass taxes. And then two years later, they did. They passed the Townsend duties, and this was uh, revenue, uh, you know, to produce revenue, and that had. You know, not just to restrict trade, but to produce revenue. That was new Uh, on glass, lead, tea. Now, glass, lead, paint, paper, and tea. And so then there was again a huge uh, uh, boycott, very you know nonviolent boycott, and it, it really it did its trick, and they they repealed the tax on four of the five items, and what they kept was tea. So starting in in 1770, tea, tea, and 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 imperial taxation became synonymous.
1: And also, the next uh, chapter in that was that England also passed what was called the Tea Act just before this outbreak of discontent, and it brought tea front and center once again because uh, the, the tea was the of the East India Trading Company, which had been this huge, huge global corporation with enormous powers, instituted at the time of Queen Elizabeth basically to advance her imperial design, the crown's imperial designs. And they uh, they fought battles on the sea, and they taxed in Bengal, and they Hmm. just had people were wary of the reach of the East India Trading Company. And at this point, though it was too big to fail, in fact, the East India Company was having terrible times because its tea was being undercut by smugglers, which was a main cause of it. There was also a kind of financial thing akin to what we've seen with the devastation financially in the United States going on at that time. So... East India Company is in terrible shape, and the Crown decides to help it out, since much of the Crown's revenues come through the East India Company, and they granted a tax break, <laughs> and uh, they're going to make it equal to smuggled tea. I mean, people can now like not buy smuggled tea. Well, actually, can. undercut
3: even they by the tax such a such a huge tax break that they could undercut the smugglers.
1: But it actually didn't go over in the colonies, because, especially in Massachusetts, because of this suspicion of the East India Company and because uh, people didn't want to buy English tea because it represented imperial authority. And mm. That was still a huge issue.
0: Boy, this was clearly a time before the concept of public relations.
1: <laughs> the gov- yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly.
3: These guys did not have, they just <laughs> didn't get public relations. <laughs> and that was from the, the get-go, like even back from the Stamp Act time. Right. You know, here you're going to try to raise revenue. So what do you do? You actually devise a, 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 a measure that taxes something that every single person in America is going to be affected by, paper. Uh, and 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 any kind of court thing, you know, anything,
2: mm, anything. Mm-hmm. paper
3: playing cards, you know, you, it packs on playing cards. I mean, so, so, and, I mean, instead of, you know, like they should just select one group and try to isolate them or something. But, uh, but they, no, they, they, didn't have their public relations down. And meanwhile, on the other hand, on the American hand, the the people in New England, the other thing that they didn't bank on is the strength of local democracy in mm-hmm. New England. I mean, these people had been meeting in their town meetings. A lot of people say why Boston, why Boston, and why Massachusetts?
2: Right, right. Well,
3: because they, they, the democracy, the grassroots democracy, was incredibly strong there. Not only did people meet in their town meetings and have been, done, been doing so since the get-go, but they actually had um, had the right to instruct their representatives. And they, as to like when they elected somebody to the assembly, each town, the town, of course, means the township. You're aware of that, of course, New Hampshire. Um, and you elect your representative and then you give them their written orders we want you to do this we mm, want you wow. to, like the Worcester said we want you to uh, try to end slavery that was the eight, uh, 1767 instruction we want you to give it put an end we don't want to finance Latin schools anymore because that's just for the for the uh, for the uppity guys you mm-hmm. know we want we want a common school so they give instructions to their representatives and and uh so they, they really owned their government. And by the way, oh, wow. New Hampshire was the same thing. Because like after the, the instructions, after the revolution in the Massachusetts Constitution, they wrote in that the people will retain the right to instruct their representatives. And that's the way it is to the day. And in New Hampshire, I just looked it up, and sure enough, there it is. Article. If you look up the article, uh, uh, see, I think uh, article whatever it is, 32, of the New Hampshire Bill of Rights, gives the people the right to instruct their representatives. So these people are in New England are primed, you know, for the, for the they're up for the fight.
0: Boy, democracy was very much alive back in the 1760s and 1770s. We are, if you just happen to tune in, keeping democracy alive. Bert Cohen here, our guest today, uh, Ray Raphael and Marie Raphael authors of the new book the spirit of 74 how the american revolution began how how novel was the faneuil hall uh, meeting on the morning of november 29th 1773 where the fate of the tea was debated while you note that, that such forums were typically open only to those who held land this gathering included men of the, quote, lower sort, unquote, who would generally be disenfranchised. They couldn't vote, they couldn't participate because they didn't own land. Could this occasion be considered a, a stepping stone in our country's path toward a more class-blind understanding of this amazing democracy?
1: You know, this shocked Hutchinson and and the uh, aristocrats in, in New England, actually, this, this idea that people just, common people, this was called the body of the people, uh, could, in fact, cast votes and take part in debates.
2: Amazing, and yes. they
1: appeared at Faneuil Hall in that time. They had appeared before, sometimes out under the Liberty Tree outside. Uh-huh. But uh, it was it was, a, it was a, a, a democracy. Of course, women did not take part in this. They were not to be seen in Faneuil Hall because they're... Their male counterparts made all decisions for them, but uh, this included seamen. It included the people that cut up sheets to make canvas sails. It included wow. all of these people had 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 a voice at this time in these assemblies that were the body of the people, and it is. it was an astonishing
0: really occurrence. That is pretty amazing. I mean, there's always been people who. In our, throughout our history, and probably still today, who figure only, you know, white Christian men who own property ought to be able to participate. You can't really have the rabble, you know, the working people actually participate right. in self-government. This, wow. <laughs> you
1: yeah, know, they also attended, there were 20 days, this is another one of these time things where there's a greater expanse of time, like the 16 months, but there were 20 days that separated this initial meeting from the time that men boarded the boats. And the other part of it is that these commoners took part in all of the varied meetings that occurred at that time, and they assumed duties. It wasn't just a matter of speaking out. Hmm. Communities throughout New England, Hmm. common people, uh, you know, they took on the responsibilities of government. And so it was commoners who boarded the ship in the end and organized themselves into three companies and through the T-overboard. Very few of the quote-unquote leaders participated, partly to right. protect themselves. Yeah. They were important individuals and would not take part in this. But throughout this almost three-week party, a period of time, this was driven by the common people. And then that continued up to Lexington and Concord. When I say we see this transformation... Partly, it is this democratization that grows and this high levels of participation by ordinary people in determining votes and in taking on responsibilities and in taking part in organizing militias, boarding ships, doing all of these things. They were so active. And it wasn't just a vote. It was doing it. And it was... was, it's just—it's a, a
0: beautiful thing. How how problematic was it to have, you know? We've heard we can't have real participatory democracy. You got to have, you know, representative uh, democracy. Mm-hmm. That I mean, it can get pretty messy. Was it was it functioning reasonably well for all those decades?
3: Well, no. It's it, it, uh, I mean, on a local level, it did uh, because you had a lot of lo- local control, and and and
2: mm-hmm. so it
3: had, sometimes it was, you know. In the small towns, you know, sometimes more than half the people held these local offices like Fence Viewer and Tithing Man and so on. They really mm. did rule themselves. Um, and then as you get larger, of course, in Boston, it's interesting because Boston was kind of the anomaly. Because in Boston, because of the great numbers of people, you did have the leaders sort of standing up on a podium and addressing the masses. Uh, and then, but, but the masses, as, I, as Lee says, were definitely participating in all these street actions. Which and event, and there were a lot more of them, uh, but then eventually the, the 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 famous Boston Tea Party. Right. But in the countryside, and you have to realize that the countryside really was where 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 the the focal point of this of this movement. What we write about those sixteen months between the Tea Party in Lexington Concord, most of it, it is happening in the countryside because that is where. Ninety-five percent of of the people in Massachusetts live outside of Boston, right? And and they're all and they're all getting together in their in their towns, and um, and they're all making their own. You know, they're used to making those decisions. And for instance, even even in the ta- out, not in the town meetings, but like when I'm I'm going to give you one example. Okay, sure, yeah. um, The Massachusetts government act it. Uh, it's quote clo- it you know I'd, we talked about how it just revoked the constitution. So what the people did is they said we're going to close the courts, and that was that was first first that idea was first uh, presented by the people in Berkshire County on the very western end.
2: Mm-hmm. So
3: their courts were going to be the first ones to, to close, and the courts in those days were not only the, the the judicial arm, but they were also the administrative or executive arm of of, of um, British rule uh, because that's Those were the guys who kind of like uh, on the ground determined they were basically county government. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, we are going to close the courts rather than have the courts convene under the new law, under the new arrangement. And so they, uh, in Worcester, uh, on one day, on September 6, 1774, and when the courts are supposed to convene, 4,622 militiamen show up, from thirty-seven townships across the county. I mean, so we're talking about literally half the adult male population of the entire sprawling, rural Worcester County shows up one day, one day, just to, you know, to close the court. And they're organized. They're well-organized. They're in their militia companies. These are thirty-seven militia companies. How are these people... There's no leader. How do they decide what to do? So here's what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they the, the local the, the, the court officials can't get into the courthouse because because the, cause the uh, wow. uh, you know the people are have occupied the courthouse you talk about the occupied movement I really? uh, they're all the way they've occupied that <laughs> well and uh, they you know, so they can't get in so they huddle in a tavern uh, in, in on main Street and so the the, the the militia companies they've already chosen their own militia captains but now they need kind of a political representative so each yeah, um, each company chooses a leader, and they get together for uh, these 37 people as a committee uh, to go talk to these uh, two dozen officials in the tavern and say, okay, you're going to do this, this, and this. And they kind of settle on something, the wording of their recantation. But, so they take it back to the people. But you know what? The people say, well, that's not strong enough. That's not strong. We need something more. And when I've talked, in other words, each of the 37 uh, leaders, goes back to his militia company and gets their input. And so the, the consensus is, no, we need something stronger. So by this time, the minutes are, are interesting for the committees of correspondence, which is trying to coordinate this. And uh, although they had met, they, they had started this process, it started like at 8 in the morning, at 2 in the afternoon, they, 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 they form a committee to find out what's the delay, what's, what's hanging things up. And you ask whether democracy is cumbersome, Yes, it is, and that was the delay. Everybody was trying to figure out. So finally, on the second try, the uh, the people give their assent, and sure enough, the guys uh, one at a time they each come out the all of the 30, the four thousand six hundred twenty two men. By the way, that's an actual head count for one of the participants. He went around, and, you know, for each of the thirty seven companies, and they they take their hats off one at a time and and recite their recantation. I will never, you know, enforce this. Uh, Unconstitutional, unjust act of Parliament, and so on. And then uh, one group hears it, and but nobody else could. So they, each one has to do this over thirty times, you know. And that was the end of British rule in, in, in Worcester County.
1: Can I chime in on this? <laughs> do we oh, please do. Fun? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, fun th- stuff. I just want to point out too that th- the kind of thing that the people were objecting to, and were they want close the court. So why do they actually want to close the courts? At one point, they, their government, the uh, the, the assembly and the council, and the council is the assembly helps to choose the council. They were able to have a say in who the judges were, and that is not happening anymore. The governor is appointing all of the judges, and the sheriff is appointing all of the jurors. It once was that the people would put together a list of potential jurors that they men that they like from their community, and the jurors who served in courts were selected from those that list. So now the sheriff is going to appoint all of the jurors. And just imagine what it would mm. be like to have the sheriff come arrest And then the sheriff is going to appoint all the jurors for the case that you're going to be tried for, and the people no longer have any say in who the judges are, so the judges are appointed by the governor who is Mm -hmm. in alliance with the sheriff. And it was as if you were entering a court that was English territory. You know, you had had no chance if the officials were against you of winning a case. And so it, it's, I mean, just imagine that now if there was no jury selection and the sheriffs in your town selected the jurors. I mean, how would you feel about that? Well, I can you know, think of, is, uh, you know, having these rights taken away put oh, people yeah. at huge risk for losing cases, losing land, losing lawsuits.
0: Well, so I, a, I can imagine back in, time. In, in the uh, first half, anyway, of the 20th century, being a black citizen down south and going into a court and ah, feeling probably yeah. pretty yeah. much
2: the
3: same. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's a good analogy. It's there, a yeah. very
1: good analogy. You know, you mm-hmm. you know, very few black jurors. No. you know, the selection is very like that. Mm-hmm. that oh, their, I'm sure. Their sense of outrage is uh, is similar and righteous.
0: It's a so, uh, uh, little personal
3: footnote here. Sure. Um, uh you know the the civil rights movement in the in the 60s um Brian and I were both our participants in that back in the day when when back in, and 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 honestly the the grassroots movement that we saw in the in the south in the 60s it wasn't just Martin Luther King of course
2: you know, we not. were uh, yeah.
3: I was involved with SNCC and she was involved with SCLC right and uh, and and we didn't know each other then by the way we just found each other with laughter but anyway uh, but th- this really affected the way we saw um, you know, uh, uh, politics happening, the way we saw history. We saw common people making history, yes. and they certainly did. And when I started studying the Revolution, I started seeing these parallels about how this, this was an amazingly rich democratic social movement that was happening. Now, of course, we're talking about in Massachusetts and in, in New England. And it had a very different character. Say in Virginia, which is you know a, 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 a slave state where mm-hmm. the leaders are these big slave owners, and 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 the, the 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 character of the revolution is very different. So things are much more localized then than they than they are now. Uh, but that but in in New England there was this incredible popular uh, popular movement aspect, which is very reminiscent of the of the sixties. You know they, they the yeah. old. Uh, thing we used to say then, let the people decide. Right. And that's what you had at every moment, even on these kind of so-called mob actions where they're getting people mm-hmm. to design, uh People are voting at every turn. Let the people decide.
0: Well, the name for this show, Keeping Democracy Alive. Democracy is just hanging on by a, th- a thread these days. Th- so many Americans have come to accept that we don't have power, that none of us average citizens have any power. We might as well just give up and leave it to the uh, wealthy white men. And it's just, <laughs> it, it certainly reminds me of, of situations back in the 1770s and, and the uh, you know black struggle in the uh, 1960s. It's, mm-hmm. it, we, we can actually do it. We, we made a change you guys made a change with the with the civil rights movement. Uh, I was in the anti war movement in the nineteen sixties. <laughs> we did it. We the people actually did it. And back then, they actually did it. And you know, I, yeah, as you were describing, crowds, big crowds. Uh, I guess peasants with pitchforks, if you will. Uh, it must have been kind of scary for those in power. But they developed procedures for giving every participant a voice. That's amazing. And recently, the the Occupy movement, Occupy Wall Street, uh, acted in a similar fashion. It was kind of messy without leaders. I wonder if you could talk about any parallels or actual historic and political philosophy kind of connections between the two.
1: You know, one thing that was important is, of course, we see crowds. And the other part of the crowds, as in the Occupy movement or whatever, is that people are taking part in the decision-making. But the other thing that strikes me in this period in our history is that there's, there is, you know, wide participation, but there is also infrastructure. It's not yes. just crowds getting together and going to a place and shouting. Right. It is that they are forming committees, and there's this patience in this people and there is this fortitude in these people, mm. and there is this, uh, this drive to design things like the committees of correspondence, for example. The committees of correspondence meant that activists who were in the forefront of the resistance movement mm-hmm. came to town meetings and presented... Uh-huh. Their plans. They informed people as to what was happening in Boston. You know, there w- there wasn't any phone, <laughs> and there wasn't any yeah. internet, but there was the committees of correspondence who could react very very quickly and spread news far and wide, and go to town meetings and inform people and make committees, and uh, uh, and that kind of infrastructure is so integral to this movement mm. and the uh, and the uh, and the participation, people took on responsibilities. They did a lot.
3: Yeah, now, the, the thing about committees of correspondence, I think most people really kind of don't get this, the real real force of it, because kind of anybody can form these ad hoc committees. And there had been, in the 16, 1760s, there had been ad hoc committees of correspondence when things would flare up, and then they'd kind of disappear. Mm-hmm. But this idea, when they started revamping these, uh, if, this was actually... Uh, the brainchild of Boston, and it is where Boston took the lead uh, in, the, in this movement, is they had the idea to form the Committee of Correspondence as part of the town meeting. It was an official committee mm-hmm. of the town. And so they did this in late 72, and they sent their letter out to the, to the town saying, Hey, uh, uh, here's all our problems with British. What do you think? And sure enough, um, you know, a flood of, of letters came in in response joining them, and 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 then each of these towns started creating their committees of correspondence. And every so at every town meeting, the committee of correspondence is issuing its report and its recommendations.
1: You know, also it's important to realize that in Boston it was pretty easy to get meetings together and word spread quickly because the citizenry is very compact. You know. but in the outlying areas, it could take a farmer uh, half a day to get to the town so he wasn't going to just drive in if somebody said there was a problem but he always went to the town meeting so this was this this method was particularly uh, uh, a comfortable way to do things within the outlying districts where ninety five percent of the sure. people lived so right it was an incredible organizing
0: device well i wonder how i mean democracy isn't easy the most efficient system of government of course is a dictatorship i mean mussolini yeah. made the trains run on time very very efficient you know whereas right. d- democracy is kind of on the opposite end of the scale and and what you're describing you know having a a structure a a format a system it, it takes time and effort, as, as you said, patience and forti- fortitude. People today say, oh, I'm too busy for that. I'm just too busy for that. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder how much of a problem being so busy and so, you know, uh, instant gratification oriented uh, mm-hmm. that we have become, how that might affect any kind of, uh, you know, realistic democracy for the future. Your thoughts?
3: Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a big issue. I mean they, when okay, so we're we're historians, okay. We actually uh we started as activists. It's uh, <laughs> funny how that happens, <laughs> and, yeah. And that's where our heart is. Yeah, uh, yeah. And now we're historians and we've kind of we kind of see the activism in history. Uh but when you do history you do have to you know, there is definitely a sense of that was then and this is now. Right. Uh these were people who lived in, in, in the more uh homogeneous uh communities, um and for better or worse. I mean you know, yeah. I mean, there uh, there wasn't a the, the great deal of diversity, and they weren't incurring diversity the way we do today. We didn't; they, we have a pluralistic society, and they did not. And so, your techniques of of persuasion, shall we say, are much easier in a in a in a home more homogeneous, less pluralistic society. Uh, if you ostracize somebody, because that was their main that was their main weapon, mm. uh, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, we are not. It, it, when some of these, when the council, the, the, the king appointed 36 counselors uh, uh, and, you know, council members, and when each one of these returned home, uh, the people let them know uh, that they that, that wouldn't work for them.
1: Before the council was selected by the assembly and the outgoing council, the so people had a say, and now the king appoints the council. Right,
3: right. Right, 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 right. So the king's appointed them, and, and, then, and he's actually, dis, dis, he's, he's basically put out of office the elected counselors. You see what I mean, they had already been elected, and then, no, you guys aren't serving, I'm going to put my people in. That's a good point, Marie. So anyway, so, so when they get home, the first thing that some of them happened, what, they, they made the mistake of going to church. And when <laughs> he goes to church, and he reads the Psalms, nobody stands up, you know? I mean, because he was a deacon in the church, this one guy. And they, you know, they get totally ostracized, and they get the message. And the, the, the smart ones just says, okay, I get it, and they resign. And then if they didn't want mm. to resign, they, they, then the, the crowds would start going to their house and making mm. sure they un- understood they'd better resign. Mm-hmm. And at some point, every single one of these 36 guys, they either resigned or had to go to Boston to the safety of British troops. So in the countryside the people have determined just, like, who can rule and who cannot. And only in Boston can those, can those people retreat, you know, hide uh, you know, hide behind mm-hmm. Mama's skirt, basically, and, and do it.
1: <laughs> one thing that I think happened at that time was the moves against the people were so outrageous, and it happened in a flash. I mean, they get the paper one day, and these these acts are... There, word for word, and they understand that their constitution has been taken away. Yeah. I don't know if people would coalesce if somebody just took our constitution away and right. they lived in Britain, three thousand miles away. So there was this very clear cut, very well defined insult, and you know that happened in this flash of a moment.
0: Well, certainly,
1: you know, things today are more insidious. And then the other part in my mind that's more insidious today is the part that money plays. So we have Citizens United. We have the TV screens. You know, it's easier to cloud things. Right. The issues are very diverse. You don't know quite what to get most excited about. And then there's all this money in play. All
0: the money. The money really warps it for sure. I've heard it, des- oh, yeah, I've heard it described as like, you know, there used to be the Village Green. Anybody could go and talk on, right. on the Village Green. Well, now, because of money, some people have a very loud megaphone and drown right. out <laughs> everyone <laughs> right. else.
3: Right, yeah. No, and and that's, see, that's, that, that's the problems activists that we all face, is that, like, then um, it was easy co- to coalesce because it was du jour. It was like the law. Had taken away your right, right you know, right. and now it's the practice, sort of insidiously yes. supported by the law. I yeah. mean, as we all know, Citizens United was. I mean, uh, for a thinking person, the Citizens United should have have uh, instilled the same kind of absolute outrage and and desire to just take the whole thing back uh... as the as the Massachusetts Government Act did, because you know that's uh, and and, and but you know but you know of course we're all upset by it and people complain about it but there's um that's that's the deal is that you know how do you deal with the fact that uh, that we no longer uh, have um uh, you know there's, there's there's not the law that says so, you know, supposedly we all have free speech and we can do what we want
2: but hey mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. some
3: people have a megaphone and other people have to whisper
0: yeah yeah so it seems If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, we're talking about 1774. Bert Cohen here. Our guests are uh, Ray and Marie Raphael, authors of the brand new book, The Spirit of 74, How the American Revolution Began. And let's just for a minute talk about the word revolution. I mean, to me, it came down to eventually there was the War of Independence, and we won the War of Independence. What, what did the word revolution mean, do you think, in 1774? I don't think it meant, maybe I'm wrong, You know, protecting the fairly rigid wealth and property-based social structure that was maintained after the War of Independence. What, what did revolution mean, do you think, back then?
1: Basically, what revolution meant was that a constitution had been taken away, and the people wanted it back. I mean, it was that simple, uh-huh. and uh, uh, you know, every every power of self governance was actually stripped. Mm. And uh, that's pretty. But, you know, we do find that by the time Concord and Lexington unfolded, there had been uh, provincial wide resistance, and there had been resistance beyond the province incorporating all of colonies and also there had been this vast militarization among the people Mm. they had uh, been training to fight they had procured arms they had procured cannons they had done you know they 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 had and an army was in the middle Yeah, yeah
3: yeah now i want to take it up on this revolution um and, and and give you the perspective. I mean, because okay, we've been talking about the spirit of '74 and the power of the people, which is very much true. The subtitle of the book is "How the American Revolution began." Yes. And yet, the book itself deals pretty much with Massachusetts and the neighboring New England colonies. And here is why: uh, because, in, as, as we said, it, 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 there was a lot of discontent throughout the colonies, but it took this act of, of revoking the Constitution to have the people of Massachusetts literally shut down the government and create their own. They actually, wow. um, hmm. in, the, in Worcester, remember I talked about yes. that, that was the town where the, uh, the 4,622 people came. And then uh, on October 4th, 1774, so we're talking about 21 months before July 4th, 1776 and the Declaration of Independence, the people in Worcester say it is time to form a new government, raise a new government, as from the ashes of the phoenix of the old, wherein all powers are are, are dependent upon the people uh, and the suffrage of the people. In other words, no more crown, no more parliament. Mm. Say, all the people. And they're ready to go this, what they call it, independency. And they're ready ready to do this 21 months before the Declaration of Independence and over seven months seven months before... Um, the uh, Lexington-Concord was six, six months before Lexington-Concord, and so what's happening is the people of Massachusetts have they throw off British rule in August, September, and October of seventy-four. That's the spirit of seventy-four that we take the title of the book from. Mm-hmm. And then the next six months, they're preparing to defend the revolution. Ah. But what about the other colonies? So. What happens is Samuel Adams, you know, rabble rousing Sam Adams, oh, you yeah. talk about. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's off in Congress along with John Adams and two other uh, uh, two others from Massachusetts, and and they get word that there's a revolution going on in Massachusetts, and they actually they get by sending the Suffolk Resolves, they get Congress to support it, but the Congress says yes, but only if you stay on the defensive and don't dare start anything. We don't want to get dragged into a war. And meanwhile, the people in Worcester wanted wanted uh, invade Boston, get rid of the British garrison, and declare independence. So there's this tension between the the vanguard of of the movement. Let's say we're going to call this whole thing sure. the movement. Yeah, and we always see this tension between always. the extreme radicals and the kind of the voice of the moderation. And what's really funny about this one is the radicals are the country bumpkins from Worcester and so on, and all the towns and and. Uh, and they're the ones who want to push it forward, create a new government, and get rid of the British right away. And so Samuel Adams, supposedly working up the crowd and everybody say he's a big rabble rouser, he writes home, as does John Adams, saying, please, you guys, try to slow those, you know, to his friends, try to slow those guys down. You know, if, we, if they go, if they'd attack Boston, we're going to lose all the support. If they declare independence, we're, we're going to lose all support. So, he becomes moderate.
0: Oh no kidding. So the
3: reason we really <laughs> focus on Massachusetts is because this is the place that it that it's about to it's about to break and because they have militarized in mm-hmm. to defend their revolution, the revolution in 74 and then the next 6 months you know are uh, are spent uh getting ready really they have the infrastructure for an army of 15,000 and by and and one week before uh Lexington and Concord this army starts to get uh mobilized i mean yes. actually you know they have re- the, the infrastructure for it and they send out for a new england army of 15,000 and new hampshire your new hampshire right. is su- is going to supply 3,000 of those people and so this is what uh gage general gage mm-hmm. the military governor is going up against when he finally gets gets enough troops to try to, you know, attack Concord, and Lexington-Concord happened. And by this time, you see, since he attacks Lexington-Concord, then the other colonies come on board. So the Revolution of 1774 came first. It's a local revolution, Massachusetts, with the encouragement and aid of of the other New England colonies. And that is happening first, and then the American Revolution basically joins it. And and, uh, there's a New England army before there's a Continental Army, and that New England army then becomes the Continental Army, and the American Revolution joins the Revolution of 1774.
0: Of course, back then, it was very physical. You had people literally working the land, and you had people with guns uh, it's you know there was the as you mentioned in the book the uh, the powder alarm where the day after uh, the British seized gunpowder from Somerville, Mass, a whole bunch of militia members uh, organized all over New England, uh, and they th- these were pivotal moments. You talk about the real uh, first Declaration of Independence, which came from Worcester. So the people had this spirit. Then they needed the guns. It was about we don't generally we don't do that today. If we talk about revolutionary spirit here, you know the average people we don't. You know we're not going to form a militia. And I mean you have some people on the far right talking about a militia, uh, but it's just not realistic. But uh,
3: well, also their militias aren't aren't real militias. The militia was the military embodiment of the town meeting, and it involved everybody. Uh-huh. Their militias are private organizations. That's a private army. That's not a militia. That's they're totally misnamed.
1: Right. They're 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 another branch kind of the local town government actually and and uh, you know, have been around for decades before this period but are become highly active.
0: Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guests are uh, Ray Raphael and Marie Raphael, authors of the new book, The Spirit of 74, How the American Revolution Began. And and you state uh, that the Massachusetts Revolution of 1774, which came from lots of towns, Salem, Worcester, Springfield, Great Barrington, that triggered not only the war for American independence, but a global conflict as well. How did the... This is fascinating. How did the events in Massachusetts lead to a war that involved all European powers and was fought as far away as India?
3: Yeah, I mean, th- this is amazing. And, and again, it's a story that we miss because we always read history backwards and we treat this as kind of a national revolution. Yeah. You know, but but, but here's how... Okay, so Massachusetts rebels, okay? And then, and then they... Um, uh, and then the issue becomes gathering powder and arms. Yes. Powder, there's no There's no local manufacturer of powder Ooh. at this point. That's a problem. And, and arms are, you know, whatever there is, there is. And so the powder alarm you mentioned, uh, General Gage says we need to seize the powder, and then the, somewhere between 20,000 and 100,000 people from all over New England, you know, sort of hear a rumor, that uh, an exaggerated rumor, and they start marching on Boston. They hear the rumors false, to, so they go home. But the issue is powder, and the issue is powder and guns. And actually, uh, within, and, and so the, the king actually uh, asked the parliament to, to basically ban gun and powder, orange import, importation sure. to America. Oh yeah. So when he does this, um, uh, two things happen. One is in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, so you guys uh, stand up for your own state, uh, state yes, uh, uh, pride here. Um, they 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 seize Fort William and Mary. The Patriots seize it, and because it was uh, very poorly defended, to grab the the powder and guns that were there. Okay, yes. and that was really the first uh, uh, offensive of the, and that was the uh, of the of the revolution. And that was military offensive. Yeah. It was uh, four months before Lexington and Concord. Um, but the other thing that happens is when he banned the importation of guns, the the people in in in. Uh, French and he, he sends a warning to French and Dutch and Spanish merch, uh, merchants say, saying, and the, to the government saying, "Hey, don't send any guns here." And so they say, "Well, okay, we hear that, but we can send however many guns we want uh, to the to the West Indies, which we've been doing all along." And don't you dare interfere with us. And so, sure enough, uh, the the in, the arms importation to the and smuggling goes to the West Indies, which, where they each have colonies, and then they get smuggled into the United States, the rebellious colonies. But by now, it's a free trade issue. Mm. And the other nations are really upset that it's Britain true. says, we will arm, you know, board your ships and so on. So there's a lot of international tension there about trade and arms importation. And then as time goes on, eventually these people, uh, all three of those nations, join in an alliance against Britain. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a global war. Uh, we know that France helped the United States. Right. It's a lot more than that. France declared war on Britain. Spain declared war on Britain. Holland declared war on Britain. Russia was about to. And mm. all the other colonies, uh, I mean, all the other uh, nations in Europe, uh, what declared what they call armed neutrality, which is basically they're going to resist British restriction on trade. So the whole world starts lining up against Britain, triggered by... Initially, this uh, the Massachusetts Revolution that becomes the American Revolution, and the American Revolution uh, goes into a world war.
0: Amazing, really, and you know, just to think how the British, you know, just throughout history, it's 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 almost comical how how you know they alienate people, and now you know we talk about. You know revolution that there has been uh, through the years throughout Latin America, people taking uh, control of of power uh, you know and and taking really becoming more actually democratic and of course, we don 't do things so much with guns, you know that doesn't how you make political change now it's more the internet, the power of information is very, very powerful. you know, who has control over information and just one last question, one thing I have learned from my studies of history, is that we never learn from history. What, <laughs> what can we learn about the animating forces and any organizational lessons from 1774 that might be applicable to the political challenges of, uh, and opportunities of today's
1: world? Some of this, I think, is what we have been talking about, and it does involve participation, democratization of on the local level of the way things are determined and decided within meetings or whatever, having clear messages, gathering people together and creating infrastructure, not just doing, you right. know, getting uh, online on Facebook and saying something, really. but actually organizing committees, really uh, reaching out to all kinds of people, trying to, you know, we're... we're we're no no longer the sort of communities that we were in 1773. It's much more diversified, but to reach out to people on all levels, uh, incorporating everybody within the community, no matter their face, no matter their color, no matter finding common common ground and trying to move that forward.
3: Yeah, and and, and to add to that... um, it, it, we certainly need the infrastructure. Remember that. And, and, and remember that, that those committees of correspondence were actually you know, um, uh, piggybacking on the town meetings. And we have to realize that. It's mm. not just a bunch of ad hoc committees. We really want to move you know, stronger than that and get more firmly entrenched in terms of the movement. And the other thing that I learned, and this is kind of, um, I mentioned that there were the radicals in Massachusetts who wanted to invade Boston right away and declare independence right away. And, and the people in uh, Samuel Adams and John Adams were, were preaching caution. They were the moderates, and they said, no, you'll alienate other people. Well, mm-hmm. these people kind of worked it out. They prepared totally for the, for the war without starting one. They prepared for war without starting one, which was a difficult thing to do. Yeah. What happened, in other words, is the radicals and the moderates kind of worked through their differences. <laughs> they both they have different strategies. But they worked through them and did not, they, you know, they weren't torn apart by it. And I think as people in the movement, we, we need to remember this. Yes. Because there's always a, a kind of a radical push within, within our groups and, yes. the kind of a, and, and then the moderates. And sometimes uh, the radical, just because it's more radical, takes charge. And eventually we can wind up like we did in the 60s with the Weathermen, where we <laughs> get uh, gets marginalized. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so you want to avoid that marginalization, yes. but neither do you want to lose your central message. Your so that's the dance that, uh, that activists have to play, is to, is, to, is to keep that going. There's no one answer, but that is an, an example that, you know, a message that I take from the Revolution of
0: 1774.
1: And sometimes when you do that dance, you have to dance backwards. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not always going in the going. same no, you direction gotta,
0: you got to have some okay. flexibility Well, we could talk another hour or two hours, actually Fascinating story, The Spirit of 74, How the American Revolution Began Ray Raphael and Marie Raphael, thanks so much for being with us And for working together to keep democracy alive Thanks so much
3: Okay, thank you for We're glad it, to be here Keep here. up the thank good you. work <laughs>